Good morning. morning. As always, it is a tremendous privilege to bring God's Word to you. We will spend uh, most of our time in Matthew 4 this morning, talking about the temptations of Jesus. So if you would like to go there. Last time uh, in Matthew 3, it was a few weeks ago, as uh, Pastor Scott and I are preaching through the Gospel according to Matthew, we were outdoors at the Piper residence, and Pastor Scott preached on the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. And uh, the big takeaway there was Jesus' identification with sinners generally and with Israel specifically. For example, Jesus, he gets baptized just as the Israelites went through the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, Paul says that Israel was baptized into Moses. At that time, we also saw in Jesus' baptism contrast. Israel went through the Red Sea dry. They escaped the judgment of God, which then subsequently, as you know the story in the book of Exodus, the judgment fell on the Egyptians, on Pharaoh and his army. However, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus went into the Jordan River. I remind you, of course, that Israel went west across the Jordan River under the leadership of Joshua, also dry. Jesus, however, goes into the Jordan River. He is baptized by his cousin John. He, Jesus, gets wet. And this foreshadows his willingness to undergo the judgment, the punishment for sin on behalf of, in the place of, Sinners like you and me. Israel stays dry. Jesus gets wet. And we will see this theme of Jesus as the true Israel again today. I want to begin and end today, though, with an exhortation in the form of a question. Here is my question. If, Christian, if you are not making a regular habit of reading, studying, and memorizing the Word of God. Why not? If you are not making a regular habit of reading, studying, and memorizing the Word of God, why not? There can only be one explanation. And it must be because you do not yet realize that God's written word is your bread. It is your meat. It is your very life's blood. When you are led out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God himself, as we will see shortly in the life of Jesus, how will you survive? When temptation comes, what will you eat? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a great and awesome God. And as the brother prayed this morning, you must do the work. We pray that you would Give us grace to be humble. 
and that you would give us grace to be hungry for your word, which is bread and meat for your people. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We ask for his help because of Jesus our Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dive into the details of the temptations themselves, I have to set the stage for the temptations in terms of the larger biblical themes by which they must be understood. And I I trust that once we do this together, once we see these larger themes, the details in the text of Matthew 4 will simply jump off the page to us. So these are the larger biblical themes that I want us to have in our mind this morning. There are three of them. Number one, as I've already said, Jesus as the true Israel. Let's plow this ground a little bit again because it sets the stage for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew and it actually sets the stage for Romans 9 to 11, which we will hear more from, I assume, in the coming weeks from Pastor Mike. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, perhaps Turn back a page. It's on a facing page for me. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Out of Egypt I called my son, Matthew writes. A quotation from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And, and I just want you to know that so many preachers and so many commentators, they struggle with this Old Testament quotation. They, they say things like Matthew is grasping at straws here in the Old Testament. He's taking Hosea out of context. This is simply ridiculous. I don't have time this morning to take you back to Hosea. The point is this. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, is literally the embodiment of Israel. He's literally the embodiment of Israel. You can see in Matthew chapter 2 that Joseph is warned in a dream to take his wife and his son, to take them down into Egypt and to bring them back up into the land of Canaan. And all of this is part of the larger picture. I've already mentioned Jesus' baptism, which was foreshadowed by the nation of Israel passing through the Red Sea. And now, look, look in Matthew 4. We see Jesus coming through the Red Sea, as it were, and being what? Led into the wilderness by God himself. If you know the story that we have been discussing for the past six years on Wednesday nights as we've been moving through the Pentateuch, the comparison should be obvious to you. What's happening here? But there will be contrasts today too. So, number one, Jesus as the true Israel. The second theme we must see is this. It's the tale of two seeds coming to a head. The tale of two seeds coming to a head. And what is this tale of two seeds? It takes us all the way back to Genesis 3. I know you're shocked. Verses 14 and 15 to be exact. What we call the proto-evangel. The, the first gospel. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, what? Tempted my son, Adam, to sin. 
Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I, God, will put enmity, hatred, conflict between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now, from the Bible... Who's the serpent? All the way to the end. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The point is this. In the temptations of Jesus in Matthew 4, we have this ongoing conflict, this ongoing enmity between the seed of the woman, who is Jesus, of course, born of the virgin. And the serpent himself. Question. For a later time. If Jesus is taking on the serpent himself here in Matthew 4, and he is, who from the Bible is the seed of the serpent? From Genesis 3.15. Send me an email if you'd like to. Be happy to talk to you about it. Alright, that question's for later, some other time. Stay with me now. So we've seen two themes thus far. Jesus as the true Israel. And we see the tale of two seeds ongoing in the gospel according to Matthew. The third theme is this. Jesus as the second Adam. Jesus as the second Adam. Let's go back even further than Genesis 3. Let's go back to Genesis chapters 1 and two, and I want you, you know the story, Genesis 1 and 2, and I want you to just have a picture in your mind. I want you to picture Adam, the first man. He's in a beautiful garden planted by God. He's with his wife, his perfect companion, and help me. He's decidedly not alone. He's before the fall. He's at peace with the animals and the angels. He's fed with food from heaven. Cultivated and grown by God. All of the conditions for Adam in the garden are literally perfect and he's tempted by Satan how does that turn out Adam disobeys God's command and he's exiled into the wilderness east that's Genesis 1 to 3 now Matthew chapter 4. Jesus goes, or is rather led, east of the Jordan River by the Spirit into the wilderness. He is alone. He's in conflict with the most nefarious angel, Satan himself. Jesus has no food from heaven. 
He's literally, as we see in verse 2, on a 40-day fast. Jesus is similarly tempted by Satan. In contrast to Adam, Jesus obeys and honors God. And he is subsequently ministered to by angels. Do you see that? Do you see the comparison and contrast between Adam and Jesus? What we see now is this reversal of the fall taking place in the life and ministry of Jesus. Of course, this is the Apostle Paul's point upon which he expands in Romans 5, 12 through 21. What's my point? My point is this, and I'm going to say this twice, so please, this is important. In the temptations of Jesus by Satan, we see Jesus replaying redemptive history, succeeding where both Adam and Israel failed, and on the lonely path to earning his rightful place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords over all of his enemies, even the devil. I'm going to say that again because you have to see this in Matthew 4. In the temptations of Jesus by Satan, we see Jesus replaying redemptive history, succeeding where both Adam and Israel failed, and on the lonely path to earning his rightful place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords over all of his enemies, even the devil. This is what we have to see this morning. So let's dive then into the text of Matthew 4. We begin with the lead up to the temptations. Verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, I want you to see three things. Let me read them for you. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Verse 1. I want you to see three things. First, Jesus was led up into the wilderness. That Greek word, led up, is the same Greek word that is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, in, for example, Leviticus 11.45. Yahweh, God, says to Israel, For I am the Lord who brought you up. Same Greek word. From the land of Egypt to be your God, so you shall be holy because I am holy. Again, Jesus is true Israel, even in the language of the Greek texts of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Second, in verse 1, we see that Jesus was led up by the Spirit. Jesus was not wandering around. In fact, He's led to a desolate place. There's no food. And He's led there with intention. What intention? Verse 1, Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or even tested by the devil himself. The Son of Man, the second person of the Trinity, he must be tempted. He must be tested so that where Adam did fail, the Lord Jesus must prevail. Where Adam did fail... The Lord Jesus must prevail. 
Verse 2, Matthew tells us that Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Of course, we know from our studies in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that Israel was in the wilderness, led by God himself for 40 years, making an obvious parallel. Jesus in the wilderness, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, by the way, like Moses. He's fasting 40 days, 40 nights, and he's hungry. No kidding. Question. At this point, at the end of the 40 days, is Jesus weak or strong? Answer. Different sermon, different day. Let's keep moving. Okay? The point is this. Jesus, at the end of his fast, is hungry. And now the enemy approaches. And we enter into the temptations of our Lord. Again, three of them. Number one, the first temptation, verses 3 and 4, make these stones become bread. Look at your text. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first thing that we have to see here, I want you to see, the first thing is that we see the devil mocking Jesus, our Lord. Do you see that? If you are the Son of God, it can be translated, oh, since you're the Son of God, this same mocking comes in the first two temptations. Where does this mockery come from? Just look up a few verses in Matthew chapter 3. It comes from Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus' baptism. The Father spoke from heaven. Jesus comes up out of the water. The Father spoke from heaven upon the Son's baptism and declared it to be so. What does He say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The tempter comes and says, So, you're God's Son, huh? And so what we see here Actually, in Matthew 4, are actually four temptations. I want you to see that. The first kind of preemptive temptation is for Jesus to doubt God's word. And so that should be ringing in your ears. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, Same temptation here. The devil says to Jesus, Six weeks ago, with your full belly, with your doting cousin John, out there in public, with your adoring masses, you heard a voice. Now you're alone and you're hungry. So let's just make sure. Let's just make sure you're the Son of God. If you, in fact, are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Why don't you do us a little favor here? Perform a little miracle, Son of God. 
You are the manna maker, are you not? So what's really at the root of this first temptation? We'll call it three temptations. The temptation is to eat. Do you see that? Did God actually say, Genesis 3.1, you shall not eat? It's the same old Satan, same old tricks, doubt God's word, feed your belly. Remember, Jesus is hungry. Have you ever been hungry? But instead of giving in to the demands of Satan, as Adam and Eve did, Jesus responds. Now, how does, his, how does he respond? He responds with God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Jesus says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus responds to the tempter. Jesus responds to Satan with the word of God given by Moses to the Israelites where? In the wilderness. That's what Deuteronomy is. We will be there shortly in a matter of days as we begin our journey through Deuteronomy on Wednesday evenings. And we see that God's word is Jesus' bread. Do you see that? Like it's right on the face of the text, right? There's not a lot of preaching need to be done here. God's word is Jesus' bread. Let's go to the second temptation, verses 5 through 7. Throw yourself down. Let me read the text, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Somehow, we don't know how, that's not the point, but somehow the devil takes Jesus, our Lord, to Jerusalem to stand on the highest point of the temple. Josephus and other historians note that this pinnacle of the temple could be as high as a couple of hundred feet above the Kidron Valley. This is not falling off of a log, as it were. Again, mocking, Satan says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And again, the demand for another miracle. And then look at this. You have to see this. The twisting of the word of God. Satan says, Okay, son of God, you want to quote scripture? I can do that too. Verse 6. For it is written, do you see that? He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against 
a stone, which is a quotation from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, which Brother Jason read earlier. What's the temptation? The first temptation was, feed your belly, give in to your hunger, doubt your God. The second temptation is, test your God. This is a twisting of the scripture. You see, Psalm 91 is a psalm of trust. A psalm of trust in God, not testing of God. But this is what liars and false teachers do. The Apostle Peter says this, There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Amen? Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Who is looming in the background of that statement from Peter? It's the devil himself. So Satan takes a psalm of trust and he twists it into an exhortation for Jesus our Lord to test his Father, his God. And to test him for what? Again, another miracle. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. Throw yourself down, Son of God. He will catch you. Understand, the Father is not the one being tested out here in the wilderness. The Son is. And this testing is exactly what Israel did again and again and again in the Old Testament. I just give you a few verses from Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Verse 7 of Exodus 17. And he called the name of that place Massa and Mirabah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord Yahweh by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the contrast of Jesus with Israel. How does Jesus respond? Does he respond by performing some great miracle? Does he call a legion of angels down to catch him as he's falling from the pinnacle of the temple? Does anyone here doubt that he could do that? He doesn't do any of that. He quotes the word of God. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He refuses to do the very thing that Israel did time and again. It's basically the, one of the primary themes of the Old Testament from Exodus to Malachi. 
For the second time now, Jesus resists temptation with the word of God. On to the third temptation. Fall down and worship me, verses 8 through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, somehow, we don't know how, but somehow the devil takes Jesus, our Lord, to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Side note, you see the, the humble Jesus, the humility of Jesus being led around? By this liar? Verse 9. All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What's the temptation? Temptation number one was doubt your God. Temptation number two, test your God. Temptation number three, abandon your God. And just as Balak takes Balaam to a different mountain so he can see the tents and the camps of Israel, and maybe Balaam will change his mind, and maybe Balaam will curse Israel and bless Balak, so the devil takes Jesus to another vantage point, to the top of a mountain, and shows him all of the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And make no mistake, friends, because there's a bit of a debate here, make no mistake, friends, this temptation is real. What's the true offer? The true offer was this. It was a kingdom without the cross. That's the temptation. Were these the devil's kingdoms to offer? Yes. As we have said many times on Wednesday nights, for 1,500 years, from Exodus to Malachi, even to the Gospel of Matthew, leading up to the birth of Christ, God, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, had been almost exclusively focused on Israel. Read your Old Testament. That's what it's about. The nations were worshipping Molech and Chemosh and Baal and any number of other gods. Asherah, you know what they are? And then we read the Old Testament prophets and it turns out that Israel was worshipping all these too. Here, Jesus, here's all the Gentile nations. And heck, I'll, I'll throw in Israel too. If you will bow down and worship me. How does Jesus respond? Does he perform a miracle? Does he roast his enemy, calling down fire and sulfur from heaven to singe the liar into oblivion? No. Like a broken record. Jesus quotes the word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13. It is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. 
Jesus rejects, listen, this is so important. This is the whole point. Jesus rejects any kingdom without a cross. Look at it. He says, be gone, Satan. He's done. The humble Jesus is done. Jesus rejects any kingdom without a cross and instead walks the path to kingship through the cross. Jesus resists the temptations of the devil and he chooses to stay on the path that was his destiny. And what is Jesus' destiny? It is the wonderful cross upon which he died as a substitute for sinners. This is the gospel. Jesus is our king. He is the king. Through the cross. Even, even because of of the cross. I want you to see that. Please turn with me to Philippians 2. I know Brother Jason read it earlier, but I just want you to see it there because the argument hangs on a word sometimes. Philippians 2. I had Brother Jason read verses 1 to 11 to set the true context for what's going on, the exhortation, the church at Philippi, but I want to focus in Verse 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at verse 9. Do you see your English Standard Version has the word therefore. Your New American Standard Version has for this reason. For this reason, God highly exalted him. What reason? The cross, his shed blood, his, quote, one act of righteousness, which Paul says elsewhere, Romans 5, verse 18. And this is exactly what we saw in Matthew 3, in his baptism. He goes down in to the judgment. And he comes up out and is declared to be the Son of God. Our King through the cross. And the cross qualifies Jesus to have all authority on heaven and earth. Daniel chapter 7, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The cross qualifies Jesus to be the one who can open the scroll and break its seals. Revelation 5, 5. The cross qualifies Jesus to bind Satan and to send his messengers out across the earth that men and women from every tribe, language, people, and nation might declare worthy is the Lamb. Revelation 5, 9. He is our great King through the cross. But is he our example? 
And I will end this morning where I began. What is your plan for when temptations come to you? Will you be looking for miracles, signs, and wonders? I hope not. Our Lord had the Word of God on His tongue. God's Word was Jesus' bread. Brothers and sisters, we have the sword of the Spirit. You all carried it in here with you today. Can you wield it? A sword is no good if it's hanging on the wall. A sword is no good to you if it's sitting on a shelf. Yes, we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. But if and when they do come, are we armed with the weapon of our King? Brothers and sisters, we must know God's Word. We must believe God's word. We must trust in God and we must worship God alone. This is the charge given to us by our King. May God give us the grace that we need to live out this charge. As a final word of comfort this morning, brothers and sisters, I leave you with Hebrews 4 14 through 16 where the preacher says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you for mercy and grace in our time of need. I pray again, as I prayed earlier, Lord, that you would give us hunger. Lord, make us to realize that we are famished and that our bread is the same bread that Jesus had. Your word provided to us and preserved for us these many centuries. Father, you must do this by your Spirit. We ask it believing in the great and precious name of our risen Savior and Lord, Jesus the Christ. Amen.